This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know mm-hmm. as a social studies educator, you got to sometimes think, I would rather have just been there. Like, right, then you really know what happened. It does save you time on reading too. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, so if you could go back in time, and there's lots of questions about how time travel works. I've been trying yeah. to think about over the years, right? We won't get into that. But if you go back in time, not change anything, make oh. make people and pictures disappear, anything. So you can't go back story? with a letter. Right, right, right. You can't change the past. Although it probably just creates a branch timeline is what I've been informed of lately. But okay, so what historical event would you go back to? So I've thought about this. So not being able to change anything, that screws me up a little because... I'm not going to get into it, but I do have a plan with a friend. So this way we know if time travel is possible, if this thing happens. But so I'm not going to tell you what that is, but we have actually. But if we can't change anything, it does make things a little bit difficult. Like you're saving it in case you in case you do this thing. Yeah. Change this thing in the past. We can't know. Right. Because then like what if someone else does it? Like I know that my friend went back to do this. Okay, at least at the very least on our last episode when we're in our you know mid 90s. Will you, right, if, right. if the plan has not been hatched by then, will you tell us? There's still time, but I'll think about it. Okay. I mean, it really depends on where 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 he is. You know, it's a it's a thing. Okay, you're just observing at this point. You've okay, acquired so- you've acquired the clothes of the era. You're not standing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's like you know the whole Roanoke thing. They wrote <laughs> don't right, and you're like, oh well, why don't we just look to that island that's called Croatoa and like or, or talk to the people that that might be oh but we can't change things right sorry yeah uh, no, you're not changing it. you're just you're just observing here right this is yeah. this is kind of some of the work we're doing in social studies classrooms right we're trying to get a sense of the past to have meaningful discussions about it in the present so the follow the berlin wall would be kind of fun yeah. right and you get to listen to david hasselhoff so that's always kind of exciting his uh, w- the song so that could be kind of fun Oh shoot! Doing like a a lunar landing or something would be pretty cool. I it's, guess it's kind of weird to pick stuff from our own lifetimes, right? Don't you feel like we should go back? I mean, because I when you said that one, it made me think of like uh, maybe being in it. South Africa during the the you know election where Nelson Mandela won and being around. Ooh. I thought that would be a good one to witness, but then I'm like, that's like I was alive during that. I have to go back. You theoretically, could have you want to go back further? Yes, right. Because you like you learn more because of course I would learn a tremendous amount being in South Africa right during that time period. But like I want to know like what people were like. I think I'm just throwing out there, like I'm thinking about like the the, the kind of like the rise of farming. I just want to see like what what's the change. I want to hear who's the person who's like farming, let's go. Uh, the agricultural revolution, which I know it took place. Oh, in many, okay. I yeah. thought you're going way back to like, you know, when there's hunting and gathering and then. Yeah. The well, 
That's I think the, transi- in the that transition, the transition, and we always talk about you know Mesopotamia, but of course, like the that shift happened all over the world in different places, right? Um, so I would be just very interested to be around when that shift happened. But then I'm like, that's probably not an event. That's like I need to live a whole life to see those changes, right? Like yeah. it happens really, want, really I mean, slowly. You want a quick hit. You want a quick hit? Yeah, yeah. I I'm gonna. Oh, okay. So you say that I can't do the fall of the Berlin Wall because yeah, it's, too recent. You know, so yeah, for everyone out there coming up with their own answers in their mind, here's our criteria. You can't change things and you can't do something that just you could have been at in your own lifetime conceivably. I'm going to, I'm going to go with the, with the, uh, the Roanoke thing. I don't know. I think it's kind of, it's one of those mysteries that I can solve and then people will be like, Hey, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I think I, I think I, you know, and I'm assuming I'm just like kind of on the side observing this. I would kind of like to see like Nat Turner's rebellion. Oh, now probably if I was there, Nat Turner would, you know, I'd, I'd get lumped in with with all yeah. the other whites in the community who were enslavers and were getting attacked. So oh, I need man. to be careful about that. Yeah. But I want to see I want to see like a, a rebellion like that. It's ability to go forward. I don't know. I guess that seems like that would be very dramatic. Yeah, no, that'd be a thing. That would be a thing. It's it's a, you know, a freedom fight that would that I think I would learn a tremendous amount from. Ooh. And that right. and that Turner was a like a very interesting character. So I don't I don't know. I just I mean I know we can't. I go ahead. The uh, wasn't the uh, what the moon thing like the lunar wasn't there like a eclipse mm-hmm. and that was yeah. part of it. That's cool. Yeah, there's like all these things that happened. I think in 1834 when I was an undergrad, we read a book. I think if I remember right, I'll try to find it. It's called 1834. It's about like all these momentous things that happened in that year. I'll double check that. Check the check the show notes. See if I got the year right because that's coming off of like twenty years ago. I I took that class. So you're going my age. with this somewhere, right? Well, I think the reality is I I think it's unlikely we're getting a time machine, but there's some other things that maybe like virtual reality that could that could oh. um, allow us to study history in other ways i don't know like how those are similar and different and how we what's going to be created but i well, think we need to be talking time travel about is it. different than virtual reality yeah very di- i mean i know i know okay well let's bring someone in to talk about virtual reality then and maybe like it's like how social studies teachers and history teachers should think about it so without further chattering by michael and i we would like to welcome into the podcast tim patterson welcome hello hello Thank you for uh, having me. Big fan of the pod. Excited to be here. Thank you. We're now do big I, fans I, of you. Oh, thank you. Well, do I get to say what event I would like to uh, go yeah, back I think and that's say? How we're gonna, yeah, I think let's do that's it. a good start. Yeah. I think I would like to go back to 1937 and sit in the show trials in the Soviet Union. And because you read contemporary reports from like, reporters from the New York Times and so on. And they they bought into the whole charade. So I'd love to sit in the room and look at the, the faces of these former revolutionaries who participated in the overthrow of the Tsarist government, creating a new world, and now find themselves on the other side of it. And, and on the other side of a repressive regime, you know what I mean? They were political prisoners right. before the revolutionary, the, the revolution. They dedicated their lives to it. Now they're confessing to these absurd crimes. And I, I, I've I've had this fascination with it. Just I'd love to look at them as they sit on the stand and, and confess the things they know they didn't do. That's a good one. 
That is a very good one. Yeah, you made me start thinking of other, you know, kind of re- similar historical um, events related to that. It's like, I mean, when people are put on trial, right? I thought immediately of like the Nuremberg trials and and some of these other. Anyway, yeah, that's a good one. There, there's so many options. I'm one. I are right, we need to have like a a board that all our all all the listeners can put their historical events on, and we can then get together and have a conversation about that. It's a good opening prompt. I mean, it. I was curious how you'd start this one. That was a good way. To, <laughs> that was a good entry point. Yeah. Nice. Well, before we go any further, Tim, why don't you tell us who are you? Sure. <laughs> so, Tim Patterson. Who, who, who am I? So I'm Tim Patterson. I'm an assistant professor of social studies education at Temple University here in, in Philadelphia. And uh, before that, I was an assistant professor at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, before that, I did my PhD at Teachers College. And before that, I was a language arts and social studies teacher, sixth grade for two years, and then a high school social studies teacher for four years. And I was thinking, I assumed I'd be asked a question like this, and I was thinking about how I came to be interested in technology, because I don't really think of myself as an ed tech person, right? Like mm-hmm. Dan's work is, is I, everyone in the social studies community knows Dan as a voice in ed technology. I don't, I don't see myself speaking confidently around educational technology, but then as I thought about my biography, it was sort of like a time travel thing, like looking back, like, well, it's always kind of been there. My mom was a, a third grade teacher for decades and then became a computers teacher, an elementary computers teacher. This is in the 90s. So we got a computer in the house as a result of that. I, don't, I can remember getting internet in high school, but, but she was, shout out to Sue Patterson, she was a, a technology teacher. It was a big part of what she did. And then when I was a high school teacher, I worked in a building where we were at something like 99% usage. Like, so none of us had our own classrooms. So if we wanted a projector to project anything, we had to find the funds to get it. And I worked with a group that brought in smart boards for the social studies department. And we did a bunch of PD around tech. And so I keep finding myself thinking about technology, even though I'm kind of like a techno skeptic and not sure what any of it really brings to the classroom. And, but yeah, so I, I'm a teacher educator. Most of my work has been in global education and experiences for teachers that help them think about the world, maybe, and help them think about teaching about the world and their place in it. And yeah, I guess, I guess that's me. And the farm thing brought me back too, because I grew up on a working dairy farm. So the farming let's go is how I imagine my dad started every day at 4 a.m., but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. There we go. There we go. I love, I love the techno skepticism. That's kind of been my go-to framing for, I think how students need to think about technology. Cause I think we will have to get into this on a different episode, but we, we so often, this will be fun in this discussion because we're going to talk about technology. And I think so often the easiest thing is seeing like kind of directly the effects of the technology, the intended purposes, but there's oftentimes other effects that are harder to account for. And that's why I think we need that skeptical lens. So how about without further ado, you don't have a time traveling machine, but you did write a paper titled Virtual Reality for the Promotion of Historical Empathy, a Mixed Method Analysis. And this was published in, you probably have already guessed it, Theory and Research in Social Education. So first, congratulations on your publication. Um, m- many, many thanks. It was a journey. It was a journey. 
I assume it always is for everyone that publishes in TRSC. I mean, mo- many of our listeners know, but if you don't, I mean, it is, a, a, we're not just saying it, it is a long, difficult process that can take literally years, right? And I mean, um, you don't just write the paper. This can be, can the start from the start of planning to the publication can can be a two to three year journey oftentimes, and so, or even longer. So tell us about this project. Can you give us the, the kind of the background and story about how how it came to fruition and what you studied? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this was a project that was conceived of by uh, my co-author Insa Khan, who is now associate professor at uh, Korea University in Seoul. And so she, she is an ed tech person. That is her, her bread and butter. And she and I had collaborated in doing some work with an elementary teacher who was doing virtual field trips. And so we were thinking about how a teacher's inclusion of a new technology into their curriculum as they integrate it in. How can this be a professional learning experience for them? And so we sort of mapped out, we did sort of an ethnographic study, and then we had him as a co-researcher do a a self-study along with us. How did he revise his curriculum, but also revise his thinking about his students, the content, the technology, and all that through the process of integrating virtual reality into, into this unit he was doing? And so, so Insook had been toying around with this idea of history learning through virtual reality. I think not unlike how you began the episode, right? So what is the, what is the potential in these immersive technologies to bring students elsewhere and to maybe uh, give them the sensation of being at a different place in time? And so, you know, uh, Insook is primarily a, a quantitative researcher and, and our collaboration began because I'm primarily a qualitative researcher. And so we would sort of help each other out with the, the, the analyses that we didn't feel prepared to do on these projects. Um, but then we entered a, a phase of our collaboration where we were getting into history-based research that Insuk wasn't didn't feel prepared to do on her own. And so she had already had a framework for thinking about, um, and she had funding uh, to, to get the technological tools to do this research, but she wanted help framing it for thinking about um, what would be the learning goals that participants who engage in the intervention strive towards, and then how would we measure them? And so that's how I came to be a part of the project. And so it was it was really her baby to start, and she meant to be here with us, but due to time zone differences, we couldn't make the, the schedules work, so she sends her regards. But at a certain point, she because she's such a generous scholar, friend, and mentor, she handed the project off to me, so it became sort of my thing that we worked on together. And then eventually, um, Lori Esposito, who is a doctoral candidate at Temple University in Literacy and Learners, came on as a third author. And she's interested in texts. So she helped us think about um, the virtual reality experience as a text. And so that's that's how it came together. And when, and when I said it was difficult or a journey, is the term I use, the TRSC part was actually the easiest part. Not that the reviews weren't rigorous, but that at least on this manuscript, the editors were so helpful and directive in, in where to take the work and where it needed you know, additional clarification or some rethinking. The journey was in, and this is something I can talk about more if you think it's interesting to the listeners, was that as a, it was sort of like the affordances and constraints of doing a research project where the team is very multidisciplinary. So the project, it was sort of like, is this an ed tech project or is this a social studies project? We didn't know where it would live. And we first thought of it as an ed tech project. And so we were bringing it to journals that primarily 
uh, publish studies of educational technology. But there was such a heavy component of history education with the historical empathy lens that they oftentimes had problems finding reviewers who could who, who felt confident in, in reviewing it. And so we we found ourselves striking out a lot. And I mean, you hear about these stories in academia about the the little manuscript that could where you take it to you know three different places and it gets desk rejected and you start to wonder if you've even got an argument worth telling. Um, and then we took it to to TRSC and we said, well, let's let's see what the social studies folks think about it. And fortunately for us, they liked it. They had really, really, really good feedback, um, hard feedback. You know, they they made it a a much better manuscript as as a result. But that was one of the one of the challenges to the paper was knowing where to go with it. I'm glad you uh, didn't stop believing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, journey. It is would have been journey. sad if you went separate ways. Yes, I'm, I'm loving the musical references. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you want it. Very nice. That's Michael. the way I'll get it. Yeah. It's it's it is difficult to do um, an interdisciplinary field because if you get good reviewers, they're gonna expect you to know both fields, right? To like be be able to speak to both, which is a challenge. Sometimes people will know one well and try to delve into another, thinking it's you know it's just it's like kind of this. There, there's a surface level understanding we all have of some of these different areas. And oftentimes, the people in the field have have delved into things that are complex. So, congratulations being able to work through you know, two fields and try to understand two fields. Um, so, so yeah. So tell us more about this project and the participants and, and what happened. Yeah. So we had, let me think, we had 30 something undergrads and graduate students participate. And so that was something we, we want to be careful about is that, you know, our findings really apply to a, adult learners. And so we think the implications you know, are, are, are meant for museum educators who are maybe integrating this kind of technology into, into museum exhibits or museum educators who are working with teachers and, and doing professional development or, or teacher educators. Um, we had 30 some participants, 36 participants, several university students who, who came in and uh, we did, we used Endicott and Brooks's application of, we applied Endicott and Brooks's uh, historical empathy model to our intervention, okay? And so that's a, a, an intervention that, that involves four phases. So you, you introduce the students to, to the topic, you give them background knowledge, you make sure the context is there. The students do or the learners do an investigation into that, into that phenomenon or that person or whatever it is you're studying. Um, and then there's a display phase where they display their learning and then they reflect on their learning. And so we, we adapted that to this um, learning module that was developed by Time Magazine around uh, the Children's Immigration Project. And that was an effort by a Unitarian, Martha Waitstill and her husband, Charles, I think, who is a Unitarian minister. They they were working to bring the children of uh, Jewish people and political dissidents who were being persecuted in Vichy France or occupied France, I should say, um, to the United States. And so they had developed this module that, as far as we can tell, teachers in some capacity were using to teach about the Children's Immigration Project. And so our participants read about the project and, and none of the participants claimed any knowledge of it. So we did a little pretest around their knowledge of uh, the Holocaust and this particular moment from the Holocaust. And so none of them had any knowledge of it or reported any knowledge of it. So they did a reading, uh, we did some direct instruction, and then they, they some 
watched or engaged in the, the VR experience through an immersive headset. And then the other group watched the same thing, only it was a movie projected onto a screen. And so we were effectively testing whether or not there was uh, any, any effect that we could discern from having the immersive experience versus having the, the non-immersive experience. And the participants wrote either in a first-person narrative about the children's immigration project, or uh, they wrote about it from a third, not a third person, a factual recount. And did they have uh, on this, or like, was this for the, if you did the VR, you you did the first person, if you did the, uh, the movie, you did the fact, the third or the factual? It was uh, all and, right? So we okay. had some folks, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So we had some folks doing the immersive, writing factual recount, some doing the immersive, writing first person narratives, some watching the movie and doing a first person, some watching the movie and doing a, a factual recount. So we tried to, we did a, a two by two factorial design. That's is what we, that's what the quantitative people would describe as uh, what we did there. So we tried to sort of capture it all. And admittedly, the sample size is a, a little bit smaller. We'd like a larger sample size. We could probably speak a little more confidently about the findings if we had a few more participants because there were so many different variables. Uh, in the design. Um, but uh, yeah, we were able to sort of think about if you had this experience and you reflected on it in this way or express learning in this way, if you had that experience, you know, and, and that's what we ended up writing about um, is, is the extent to which um, having an immersive experience encourages uh, any level of historical empathy. And so Delora et al. had developed a coding scheme around uh, historical empathy that was inspired by Endicott and Brooks's, their, their conception of historical empathy, which is the, the dual domain version of historical empathy that, that looks at the cognitive approach and the affective approach. Yeah, we, we found across the, the data set some measure of historical empathy. So we found that encouraging, not unlike what uh, Medsker and Stoddard found when it comes to viewing movies about the past, we found potential in cultivating some measure of historical empathy and a little bit more for those that experienced historical, uh, his, who experienced the uh, immersive technology, the immersive VR. They offered a little bit more on, this, on their scores, historical empathy. Uh, but really the biggest factor was whether you were writing a first person narrative or whether you were writing a factual recount. And again, we saw evidence of historical empathy as Endicott and Brooks defined it in both sets. So we were sort of like, okay, this is all great. But if you're interested in, in investing time and learning how to do immersive VR, you know, we didn't find a ton of historical empathy as an outcome while noting that it's maybe problematic to see historical empathy as just an outcome. But um, we did see situational interest piqued by those doing the experiencing the history learning through the immersive VR, meaning they were, uh, they reported out more engagement with the, the material as a result. So, yeah, I'm curious and just maybe like describing a little bit more about like, what was the experience like for, for participants, right? Like how would you, cause I, I kind of have a sense of it, but I feel like I, I need a little bit more description. If, if you have a VR headset that of the actual research study, I can watch all the participants, VR on people watching VR, right? It's mm -hmm. like very mm -hmm. meta. Um, if you don't have that, I'll accept an explanation. Sure. I don't have that, though I agree. The only thing more fun than VR is watching people do VR. 
It's great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have that. So it was not in a classroom setting. So that's one thing to be mindful of, right? So they would come into my office or Insook's office and they would they would do a one-on-one learning experience. So it's more akin to what you might experience if you were in a uh, in a museum and you saw an exhibit that had a headset and you were going to go do that kind of, you know, experiential learning. Um, so they, they come in, they're given some direct instruction about the Children's Immigration Project, and then they read a piece, a short essay on it. And then they either view it or they put on the headset and they do the experience where they're moving around the boat and they're interacting um, with with people on the, on the ship. And then they're hearing throughout the virtual experience um, accounts from folks who are there. So either letters written by the kids narrated by children or testimonials from them as adults. And then afterwards, they they write the reflective piece and, um, you know, write the factual recount or, or the uh, first person account. When you say interacting with the people there, what do you mean? So they're moving about the boat and then they're seeing them, right? So it's not it's not like a game where they have like branches and options. It's a really very basic VR module. It still seems pretty cool. Yeah, no, oh, no it's... I mean they they reported loving it. Google Cardboard. I um I did I do have a couple sets of Google Cardboard in class and in before the pandemic, like we used to for World War One, there was a bunch of trenches and stuff, and it was just a station. Students had to like download this stuff on their iPhone on their iPhones or whatever before because they couldn't, but they really seemed to enjoy it. It was just like it was just a way to get their attention. It was just like it was just a little event that we would have. It wasn't better than anything else, but they were really kind of engaged with it. And it was interesting for them to like see it. And there was a little bit of information they can kind of play with. They liked doing it and talking about it. Uh, I'm sure there's better ways to teach, you know, life in the trenches. And we did look at like different sources and whatnot, but it was just a fun station to kind of pique their engagement. And I think that's kind of where we land with with this study is that it's not it's not a revolution, right? Like it's not a time machine. It's not going to bring them back in time. But it is a way to maybe generate an additional excitement about the topic. We certainly don't see it as something that in any way inhibits learning, though there are caveats to the, the, the time travel analogy and, and the limits of it, I think, are helpful for thinking about the caveats or the limitations of doing VR. Um, and we don't, this is something we need to write more about and explore more with, with participants is the extent to which VR historical learning is less like time travel and more like participating in a reenactment. And so, you know, helping students recognize the biases that are built into a VR experience that are, that are, you know, that are created by the designers of it and, and that they're still viewing it through their lens that they are not seeing something in the past. That's a that's a thing we don't we we talk about it a bit in our discussion, uh, but we don't explore it and we didn't explore it with our participants. The extent to which like their identities that they bring to the experience influence the way they thought about the experience. We we that was not part of our protocol. We didn't do that. It's a it's an area for exploration. And I don't I'm not aware of a, a lot of research on technology in or VR or AR in social studies education that has and dug too much into that. That's a definitely an area for that needs to be mined further. I, I think one of the challenges with these different 
you know, mediums, the different, and all I mean by that is the different types of technology that we use is that they all kind of demand a different type of thinking, right? And I think you, I think even the models you use get into this a little bit. Some are more analytical, like, so reading a primary source text or anything like that is a bit more of an analytical process. You kind of read through it and you get to do it at your own pace and you think about it. But the, or some of the early research on how social studies educators used movies suggested that it's very memorable. And so especially like when you have a movie that has like a scene that maybe is incorrect or problematic, those scenes can kind of stick with you in these ways, right? Like, so television kind of like the experience is so immersive and I know we don't, it's not near what VR is even, right? But there's so much happening. You're trying to, you can't pay attention to all the things that is are produced in a movie, in a Hollywood movie, right? Because there's sounds and music and camera angles, things that you just can't like all focus on. And so it kind of washes over you and gives you impressions of things that happen. Um, and I've used, for example, the Forrest Gump movie, right? Where the Black Panther scene is is really a very racist depiction of the Black Panthers. It, it flattens them to these angry men who would just yell at you when you'd walk in the door and, and also seemingly didn't really care about violence against women. And so, but that impression like can stick with you even analytically if someone tells you, no, this is incorrect. You shouldn't believe that, right? And because that's kind of the power of TV, right? You just have these ways of remembering things like you were there in a sense. So I'm wondering if VR is some of this same way, like like I'm trying to think of like some of the, the affordances, what VR allows you to do, have these memorable experiences that engages people in history, but how do you know you're getting it right? And like, what are kind of the side effects of how they may remember or think of history differently um, or expect to even think of history, right? So I'm just thinking of all these like unintended consequences of of using mediums that are very unfamiliar to social studies teachers. Like, can we account for those things? Yeah, no these are these are things that we need to think about. We we unfortunately don't explore that in this piece because we had them for this. You know, the whole intervention took about hour hour and change, and then they went on their way. So we we didn't follow up. We 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 didn't do like a post type interview in a perfect world, we probably would have um, to explore that. And then it'd be nice to look back now, like, what do you remember about that experience? Certainly the, 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 the Forrest Gump effect that, you know, Sam Weinberg and others have written about is, I think you're absolutely dead on right with that, Dan. I'm, I'm, I'm working on an unrelated project around using VR to develop a, a game set in archives to think about whether, um, for, for for instance, students in Philadelphia who can't come to the archives we have on campus, could they could they experience, we have this collection of African-American history called the Bloxon Collection, could they experience this collection virtually? And could we gamify it in a way that would provide them a motivation to move through the archives and develop some skills around historical thinking and think about the archive as a as a constructed space, right? As not just a repository of, of historical data, but as a, a thing they interact with. And could it then be, could VR be a transformative experience that's that's helpful in that way or productive in that way? Um, we're at the very beginnings of designing something that we could then test and see. But but I, I suspect otherwise VR can operate in a lot of ways like what you described as that that Forrest Gump or that that movie experience where you have a powerful visual that sets in and it may come to define for you what that historic moment looked like, felt like, was like. And then, you know, I, I in terms of unintended consequences, I also worry about it almost feels 
lazy. If it's not scaffolded with other learning experiences, like, so Michael, you described it as a station that would pique interest that students would then go do something else, right? Yeah. Like it can't substitute, like this can't be the way they learn about the Holocaust, right? This, this thing that, you know, there's got to be something else to help understand, like resist, like we, we found it to be a powerful module because it's a, a story of resistance during the Holocaust or agency, which oftentimes the Holocaust is not portrayed in that way by curricular materials. But like, you know, you'd need to do so much more to have a powerful learning experience that would help students think maybe differently about the Holocaust than they than they had based on all the other learning they've done. It kind of reminds me of the the games that I don't know if you remember that I won't even, you know, say the company, but the games that got created where you like were literally put in the position of, you know, enslaved black woman and you had to make choices with an overseer there. And I'm just like, that is like, you know what I mean? The thing is, is that I'm even reading about those experiences can be rather traumatic and serious when you're looking at sources, but to actually have students play that out is highly Whoa. problematic. And there were some very good critiques of those at the time. I think we've even mentioned it back, back in the day. I think we're Franz Davis, who was on, and I think in our fifties episodes, like wrote a really good blog post that challenged some of those. And I, I think I probably mentioned it then. Yeah, that was in episode 57, Real Tech with Rafranz Davis. And so anyway, yeah, there's there's these challenges that there's a responsibility that comes with understanding like what we should take to these different spaces and what we shouldn't. And also just like the these other effects they have. So that gets us to that question. So what, what would be your advice for teachers interested? They're like, VR, okay, I'm interested. I, I want to understand this more. Or scholars who it's from what i'm hearing it sounds like there's a lot of avenues for for further study uh what advice do you have for both teachers and scholars oh yeah she yeah. race it with open arms <laughs> very good so one one aspect of the uh article that we've talked a little less about that i would i would want to offer advice around is the historical empathy piece of it because like the vr historical empathy is is kind of uh I don't want to say a double-edged sword, but it's it's a construct that is inherently controversial, that there are people with whom we wouldn't want students to empathize. And of course, you have to recognize, like with VR, that there's limits to, to the extent to which you can take on another person's perspective. Even if you're taking on the perspective of a bystander to an event, your ability to go back in time and take on that perspective is, is limited. And so um, I think... I think VR is a perspective-taking task, right? So anytime students, anytime teachers, excuse me, ask students to take on the perspective of a historical actor, they have to do so in a way that's thoughtful. So there has to be, students should have strong background knowledge, should have knowledge of the context if, if, if they want to do that in a way that's productive, if they want to sort of get close to the perspective of a, of a historical actor. But students often understand that like empathy involves like a distance as well, right? Like it's not historical sympathy, it's, it's, it's historical empathy. And so just like with VR, if you're asking students to take perspectives or you're having them put on a headset to try to immerse themselves in a, in a time period or a moment, that they should also be exploring the limitations and the distance, that they should be aware that the virtual space is constructed. Even when they feel like they're there and the sound is everywhere, that that's not, you know, that that's a, that, those are effects created by a software developer and somebody who's designing a curriculum. And just like, his, you know, when you're, you're empathizing with someone who's experienced something that you 
you recognize your own perspective in the in the present, right? Like the the presentism is a, a thing we should be concerned about that that students don't apply present day assumptions and values when when thinking about the past, or at least check them as they think about the past. I think presentism can be can be productive in thinking about the past as long as you recognize that's that's what it is. For for researchers, I mean, you know, historical empathy is hard to write about. And just like with VR, I'm I'm kind of skeptical about historical empathy as a construct. I think, you know, I'm working on another project that's thinking about historical empathy as a well, I'm thinking about discussions in the classroom, but we've noticed the way students take up historical empathy when trying to elaborate a point. It's sort of like a, a thing they will often fall back on. And, you know, Dan Sledright, when he writes about historical empathy, he writes about how, you know, you have to check your assumptions. You have to be aware of your assumptions when you're, when you're, when students need to help, uh, teachers need to help students be aware of their assumptions in the present if they're going to attempt to empathize with someone from the past. And so in discussions, you know, when it's very like in the moment, a student's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this and, you know, it makes me think about that time I did that other thing. They're maybe not doing that. Um, and it can be the same thing in VR that, that you know, when a, a student is immersed in it, they're not thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the world they live in now. Um, so I would encourage teachers who are going to integrate VR or try to integrate VR to, to, to teach students about VR, right? Like to do that, that media literacy work. And it's, you know, VR is, I think, Michael, you described it really well. It's, it's another tool that we can use that can help cultivate interest and engagement and excitement, but it's, it's just a tool. I, I went, you know, at the beginning, I was saying that I've, I've never felt like an ed tech person, but it's been there all the time. I think that's because I've always, when I was a K through 12 teacher, I often worked with people who it was like every new tool was going to be the fun thing they bring in and that was going to change their classroom. And I, I never wanted to be that person because it was always so like, here's the new bell, here's the new whistle. And then we move mm-hmm. on. Um, and VR is one of those things. It's it's a great technology. It's become it's become very cheap. We've come a long ways from that Aerosmith music video where it was like this huge headset thing. Was that crying? Um, I think it was crying. Yeah. Hmm. I think. Well, I'm impressed your students thought whistles were like the the newest technology of the day. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Thank you. And. Well, so this is, I think that this is really exciting discussion and there really is so much to dive into and you really helped, I think, you know, hopefully initiate a discussion in social studies. Cause I think a lot of fields are starting to wrestle with some of these, you know, n- implications of these technologies that are being taken up also more broadly. And so I, I really appreciate that you're I'm not just thinking of it in social sense, but also about how we help students think about VR. That's like a social studies topic that I think is worth exploring if you're going to bring it into your classroom. Agreed. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the practitioner work that's around VR and social studies, or not work, but practitioner articles often sort of take it as an assumed good. And we're not totally challenging that, but we are hopefully adding some caveats. And like you said, Dan, hopefully starting a conversation about it. Well, Tim Patterson, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We definitely appreciate the fact that you're sitting here with us. Much appreciated, Michael. I'm glad to do it. Where can our listeners find you or your work online? Or is there any like VR programs we can download where we can just watch you do your work? Well, that'd be cool. Uh, that doesn't exist yet. Hopefully never, but maybe. I am available on yeah, that's, Twitter. I... That's like called Big Brother, I guess is what that's called. 
I, I rarely tweet, but I am on Twitter at NewlyFast. And yeah, people can reach out to me through my email at uh, templetimothy.patterson at temple.edu. Always happy to, to chat about this stuff. And you can find me in Philadelphia. And of course, we will get uh, all of the articles, uh, including the one we featured here today in the show notes. So you can find um, all of those there. So thank you so much again for joining us. We will certainly continue the discussion online. People will tweet you things and you'll see them weeks later when you log in. (laughs) My pleasure, Dan. Uh, Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, we're sometimes on Twitter. Hit us up there at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will repay you by creating VR episodes of Visions of Education. We, we, we prompt, we're going to make it happen. Just we need, but you have to put in your review. Who is you? I don't know. But once that person we're talking about puts it in, VR episodes will be created. And we'd also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. I'm still on Twitter. You can find me there. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm forever yours, faithfully. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.